Ladies, the podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're your hosts. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Zoe. Lizzie, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine. I'm excited because we got new microphones and they're very fancy. Um, other than that, my birthday is coming up in a week. So by right. the time this airs, actually, yeah, no, yep. by the time this airs, I'll be 25. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I know. That'll be very exciting crazy but it's gonna Mm -hmm. rain on my birthday which is kind of sad but oh well it might not rain that's true you never know yeah but i think it probably will okay i mean i live in the netherlands so Mm. i guess it rains a lot i guess so i don't know much about the weather in the netherlands but it's it's kind of like massachusetts weather okay a bit Mm -hmm. anyway how are you i'm good i'm currently in massachusetts i am on vacation which is very exciting because i haven't done that in years you want to know something weird I heard the other day? I just remembered. What? And I was hanging out with a friend who's Irish and her friend who's English. And they were like, it's so weird that in America you guys don't have roundabouts. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yes, <laughs> we do. Yeah. Apparently it's like a thing. It's like a rumor that America doesn't have roundabouts, which is weird because we very much do. Yeah. No, that's how <laughs> I got those weird things last year on Lizzie's birthday, by the way. Oh, wow. <laughs> Although that wasn't technically in a roundabout, it was entering one, and someone, like, slammed into me, and I was like, dude, what the heck? Um, But everything was okay. I was okay. Um, Insurance covered it. The United (laughs) States does have roundabouts, or rotaries, as we say in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, I think they're pretty popular in, like, New England, but... Is more than other but places. But we have them in Colorado, too. Okay, like, then. No, I, no, no, no. I've never been... T- I mean, maybe the, maybe there's places where there's no roundabouts, but I've never encountered that. I had never heard that before. I was like, what the hell <laughs> kind of really rumor funny. is that? Yeah. I mean, I think they're not the best way of organizing traffic, to be honest, but like... I have no opinions. Okay. I think it's just a, all becomes a little chaotic once you enter the roundabout. It can be a bit stressful. Mm-hmm. Anyway, how are you? <laughs> Yeah, I'm good. I'm on vacation. I had a cheese danish for breakfast, and I'm just That's chilling. Awesome. Um, I go to the beach later. Um, I still have work I have to do for my internship, but it'll be nice to do it in a place that's not my house. So that was always fun. That is nice. Although also it's like new environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of cold here, though, which isn't like the best beach weather. Really? Yeah. New England's having this like really cold July. Like in Vermont, it's been really cold, too, and rainy. But I'm going to go to the beach anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm determined. Nice. I'm like one of those tourists. You, you don't have to swim. Yeah. Just but you could. Read. Mm-hmm. People in the north sometimes swim in cold weather, which is yeah. weird. Well, it's going to be like sunny-ish, so maybe that'll be good enough. True. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. So Lizzie, who are we talking about today? Today, we are going to talk about Tiamat, <gasps> who is the Mesopotamian goddess of primordial chaos, best known Ooh. from the epic, the Enuma Elish. Really? Yes. Um. Do you know her? I didn't know her because I put her on one of our lists, but... Oh, And I okay. think she might be a dragon, but other than that... She not, might be. Not much about her. 
Yes. Okay. So, first of all, the Enuma Elish is an epic poem from Babylon that was discovered by the English archaeologist Austin Henry Layard in 1849. It was found among the library of Ashurbanipal, which was an ancient collection of clay tablets from the 7th century BCE, containing thousands of texts, among which was also the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm. The library was in Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, in modern-day Iraq, near the city of Mosul. So the Enuma Elish is comprised of seven clay tablets with a total of 1,100 lines of poetry written in cuneiform, which last episode you were like 3,000 lines is super short for an epic poem so I was like oh 1,000 lines is definitely short which I was like hmm and then I googled how many lines were in the Ramayana and it was like 24,000 and I was like okay yeah yeah I guess Mm 3,000 is not very many lines yeah although I will say if you're carving it into stone or like clay tablets I would say keeping things short is probably the best decision yeah yeah because then 1,000 lines of poetry is actually quite impressive Mm -hmm. I mean you can't, like, throw away a tablet and get a new one if you make a mistake. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe you could, but... Or scribble things out. Want to. Or I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert on clay tablets, but... I'm also not. <laughs> anyway, so when it was discovered, it was known as the Babylonian Epic of Creation, but it was known by Babylonians and Assyrians as the Enuma Elish, which are the first words of the poem, and translate to when on high or when above. Love that. In addition, yeah, I think it's kind of nice to name... The poem after the first couple words. Mm-hmm. In addition, though the Enuma Elish is often referred to as the Babylonian creation myth, there is some debate over how accurate this is. Much of the text does not focus on creation, but rather on the god Marduk's rise to power. Not every line of the Enuma Elish has been deciphered due to centuries-old wear on the clay tablets. Most of the lines have been deciphered, but there are many points where words or whole lines are not legible. Mm-hmm. In particular, the majority of the fifth tablet has never been recovered. Wow. Yeah, it's a bit sad. Mm-hmm. It's unknown exactly when the Enuma Elish was written. It's thought that the version that was found in the library of Ashurbanipal was likely written in the 7th century BCE, but that the original story was written much earlier. Scholars are unsure of exactly when, and there has been much debate, but estimates range from about 1100 BCE or earlier to 2000 BCE. Many of the older dates were commonly thought during early scholarship from the time the Enuma Elish was recently discovered, though more modern scholars typically dated between 1800 and 1100 BCE, depending on who you ask. Hmm. But a lot of this epic is just stuff that is not known, mm-hmm. as you'll see as a trend. Yeah. There's a lot that people have just not figured out for certain, or they just have no way of knowing. Yeah. But yeah, the poem tells the story of the god Marduk triumphing over the forces of chaos and establishing order at the creation of the world. So, Tiamat is a Mesopotamian goddess associated with primordial chaos and the salt sea. She symbolizes the forces of chaos that threaten the order established by the gods and is the main adversary of Marduk, the hero of the story. Mm. In later periods, she was often depicted as a serpent or a dragon based on vague descriptions of from the Enuma Elish because her physical descriptions are not totally clear. So you're right, she is sort of, like, possibly a dragon. Mm-hmm. Like, that's accurate. She is possibly a dragon. It's not known. Or a serpent. She's described as having a tail and possibly an udder and horns, but there is no official iconography, so we can't really know for sure how the Babylonians envisioned her. Mm-hmm. Also, her name comes from the Akkadian word for sea, which was Tamtu or Tiamtu. Interesting. Yeah. And what is interesting is that I was looking that up, and the, these two, two words were the same. They both meant sea, but they're from the same dictionary. So there must have been like two different words, at least two different words for sea that were just like basically the same but anyway interesting her name comes from a word for c Mm -hmm. so now we begin the story 
Do you know anything about the Anomalies? No, I don't actually. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I mainly know about the Epic of Gilgamesh, and that's the one that everyone really talks about. So, yes, I know you like Gilgamesh. I love Gilgamesh, so I'm interested to hear about this one because it's yeah. like the hipster um, uh, <laughs> Babylonian epic. Or so true. Okay, so. In the Babylonian creation story, there was no life in the universe until the god Apsu, who was made of fresh water, and the goddess Tiamat, who was made of salt water, mixed their waters together and created the first gods, Lamu and Lahamu. Hmm. I think that's kind of, kind of fun, just mixing the waters together and creating life. I also think that's interesting because the Fertile Crescent is at the mm -hmm. confluence of two rivers. Yeah, exactly. Tiamat and Apsu created Anshar and Kishar, who surpassed Lamu and Lahamu in skill. Anshar and Kishar then had Anu, whose skill rivaled his parents. Anu then had Ea, who you know as Anki from our Inanna episode. His mm -hmm. name um, in Sumerian is Anki. Um, and he was his father's equal, so he didn't surpass his father. They were both very talented. Hmm. So these gods all came together, but their clamor got loud and began to irritate Tiamat. Apsu was also annoyed by them and went to Tiamat to discuss the matter. He said to her, Their behavior has become displeasing to me, and I cannot rest in the daytime or sleep at night. I will destroy and break up their way of life, that silence may reign and we may sleep. Hmm. Tiamat, though she was annoyed by these gods, was distressed by Apsu's suggestion. She said they shouldn't destroy what they gave birth to, but they should just have tighter discipline. However, Apsu decided to go through with his suggestion and destroy the other gods. Oh. Yeah. So when the other gods found out about Apsu's plan, Ea crafted a spell to put Apsu to sleep, then killed him. Ea and his wife, Domkina, then had Marduk whose power and wisdom surpassed even Ea and Anu. Anu then created the four winds and unleashed a hurricane on Tiamat. He and the other gods taunted her, saying that when her husband was being killed, she stood by and did nothing. Oh. Yeah, I know. It's pretty mean. They told her, it's really mean, because, like, she was on their side. Yeah. And now she's being taunted for it. Like, what do you want from her? Yeah. Anyway, they told her that they created the four winds just to confound her, and many of the other gods said that she should try to avenge her husband. Tima decided to do what they told her to do, and she gave birth to 11 monsters, including the Hydra, the Dragon, and the Scorpio Man. Scorpion Man. <laughs> <laughs> the Scorpio Man, so true. But the most powerful of these creatures was the god Kingu, who she decided to make the leader of their monster army, and gave the Tablet of Destinies, which ensured him as the leader of the universe. Hmm. Isn't that a national? No, a national treasure. I have a museum, too. I was thinking of Indiana Jones, but that's because I was thinking of the Ark of the Covenant, which is a different thing. Um... Isn't there something similar in one of the night the museum? Yeah, well, movies, they have the though. tablet that makes them come to life. Oh, okay. But I can't remember. See, like, I, did not, the... I didn't. I did not think of that as I was doing my nose. It just occurred to me right now. Yeah, I can't remember sort of like tablet. the lore behind the tablet though. No, it's been a while since I watched those movies. Yeah. Anyway, so Tiamat, along with the eleven creatures she created, began to plot against the other gods, making them fearful. Anshar told Ea he had to take responsibility for his actions, so he went to visit Tiamat perceived her tricks and turned back around. He told Anshar that Tiamat's powers are too great for him and that none can go against her. He also says, my father, do not lose hope. Send a second person against her. Though a woman's strength is very great, it is not equal to a man's. <sighs> so true. It's a bit ironic because he just lost. Mm -hmm. 
Like, what are you bragging about? He's a uh, projection. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they send Anu next, try to defeat her. But the same thing happened again. Anu saw Tiyama and turned around and went home, saying that he's no match for her. He also said the same thing as Aya, that they must send another man to go against her because a woman's strength isn't equal to a man. So they send Marduk next. So Marduk fashions weapons and with the other gods in his cohort, leaves to fight Tiamat. When he sees her, he is fearful, but he curses her and challenges her to battle. When Tiamat hears this, she, quote, went insane and lost her reason. Oh. <laughs> yeah, she began to recite an incantation while all of the other gods sharpened their weapons and prepared to kill her. Marduk threw at her a net that he had made and unleashed the evil wind, which she tried to swallow, but which only weighed her down and began scrambling her innards. Oh, ew. Yeah, very. Marduk pierced her with an arrow and split her open, killing her. He stood triumphantly over her corpse as the monsters she created dispersed in fear for their lives. He captured all of them, broke their weapons, and chained them up. As for Kingu, they took the Tablet of Destinies away from him and sent him down to the underworld. Marduk then split Tiamat's corpse in two and made one half into the heavens and the other half into the earth. Interesting. The end. Well, that's actually not, actually not the end because there's like a bunch more where they're just talking about how great Marduk is. But that's the end of the story as it involves Tiamat. Mm-hmm. Although the rest of the tablets are just like talking about how Marduk is so great. It's really not like mm-hmm. much more that happens. But anyway, the end. Wow. Thoughts? I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> well, so first of all, I think it's interesting because I know that in ancient Egypt, they also had gods of chaos and order, and mm-hmm. the god of chaos was also a snake, but it was a male figure, and the personification of order was a female figure. So I just think it's interesting that it's sort of reversed. Yeah, I mean, I think that people often say, like, oh, she's the goddess of chaos, because she does represent it, but, like, only later. Like, yeah. she, at the beginning, she doesn't represent chaos at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and anyway. I know that um, there was connection and trade between ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, so there was like mm-hmm. definitely probably yeah, similarities probably in influence, religions yeah. and stuff. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. And yeah. I think it's really interesting that she was on their side, but they basically didn't want to take, they didn't want to accept right? her. Exactly. She really wanted to not have her husband kill their children just because they were being too loud she wanted to protect them and i feel like them being too loud for my interpretation that is sort of like you know the youth having big new ideas and stuff Mm -hmm. and like sort of the older generations not liking that but i i'm not a scholar um so i could be wrong but that's sort of my five second interpretation and i think that so i think it's really interesting that she was like no don't do that and he did it anyway, and then they all turned against her. Yeah, like what was she supposed to have done? And I feel like she sort of gets caught in this like catch-22 area where she's like not supposed to, they didn't want her to be, to turn against them, but also they thought she should have supported her husband more. Yeah, so it's like they criticize her for not being loyal to her husband, but she was loyal to her children. Mm-hmm. So like, what do you want? Yeah, so they're sort of like, well, you might have helped, uh, tried to help us, but you didn't fulfill your role as a woman properly or as a wife properly. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, we don't like you either. And then ultimately, she's like, well, if this is what you think I should be, then this is what I will be. 
and becomes like yeah. a chaotic being. Like there's no way for her to win. Mm-hmm. So like what is she supposed to do? Yeah. Of course she becomes an evil force of fighting against them. Mm-hmm. Of course, like what what choice did she have among all her options? Mm-hmm. They're basically like this is what you should be and she was like okay, then I will be that. And then Yeah. They killed her for it, which is, like, understandable because she was sending monsters after them, but, like, also... But it's kind of their fault. They made her that way, yeah. Exactly. So, it was just, it's just such a weird... Their reaction to her was so weird. Mm -hmm. And I also think that their way, the way, when they kept getting beat by her and kept being, like... A woman's strength is no match for a man, even though they kept being beat by her. Is like clearly this isn't working, but then also in the end, it turns out that they're right in a way because yeah, uh, Marduk is able to come by and beat her in the end. So I'm kind of like unclear what their point was in this to say like they just needed the yeah, most like- <laughs> manly man possible, and I guess Marduk is the most manly man. Yeah. <laughs> They're just like, well, I lost, but surely some man can overtake her because she's a woman, Mm -hmm. so she's bound to lose eventually. Yeah. But it's like, well, you lost to her, so. Mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. And finally, I think the end part about her becoming, like, half of her becoming this sky and half of her becoming land is interesting because it reminds me of the Norse creation myth. And in that is, there's sort of, like, the primordial giant, Ymir, is defeated by his children, the young beings that sort of spring up in the creation after him, and then transform his body into the earth. And that's interesting because I feel like there's some sort of parallels there. Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually also thinking that like while I was talking that she was kind of similar to Grendel's mother in some ways we talked about in the previous episode Mm -hmm. like the thing about like having to kill her and she's like a mother and she was like trying to get revenge for her Mm -hmm. husband then Grendel's mother had to get revenge for her son Mm -hmm. and then they just killed her but I mean she's not any more evil than any of the other characters even though she's meant like sort of positioned that way Mm -hmm. yeah Definitely. As I mentioned earlier, though the tablets themselves were likely written in the 7th century BCE, the story of the Enuma Elish dates back several centuries earlier. Mm-hmm. Many scholars believe it was written during the reign of Hammurabi, who was a Babylonian king who reigned from 1792 to 1750 BCE. Do you know Hammurabi? Yes, he did have the code. Exactly. Do you remember <laughs> anything about the code? Eye for an eye and different punishments based on your social class. Yeah, pretty much. And so um, Hammurabi is well known for issuing the Code of Hammurabi, which was a legal text that covered a range of domains from criminal law to family law and property law. The code contains a total of 282 laws, as well as a poetic prologue and epilogue. It also features a number of laws that make it abundantly clear that Babylonian society at this time was very restrictive and violent to women. Mm-hmm. Do you remember any of those laws? Um, Not when it comes to women, no. Yeah, well, I won't go into detail, but just to give an example, laws number 209 and 210 say that if a man strikes a pregnant woman and causes her to miscarry, he has to pay 10 shekels to cover the loss of the child. If the pregnant woman dies, then the daughter of the man who struck her will be sentenced to death. Mm. So no punishment if you strike a non-pregnant woman. And if you kill her, then you don't get in trouble. Just your daughter dies. Yeah. Pretty horrible. Yeah. Pretty. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that was a time in which this was written. Possibly. 
Um, so aside from providing some general social context of this time, the fact that it may have been written during Hammurabi's reign is important in understanding the Enuma Elish, because this was a time when popular female deities such as Inanna were declining in worship, being mm-hmm. replaced by male deities such as Marduk. Originally, Marduk was a relatively unimportant figure in the Mesopotamian pantheon, but slowly grew in importance and became the pa- patron deity of Babylon. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Yes, it really does. Why he would be like the greatest, like, most powerful god. Yeah. Thus, the historical context it may have been written in was a time where both human women and female deities were seen as unimportant and were cast aside for their male counterparts. There is debate about whether the Enuma Elish was indeed written during Hammurabi's reign, and there are some scholars who believe it was unlikely. I think it's clear the way that women were viewed in the time it was written in just by looking at the textual evidence. The gods repeatedly say that they will definitely be able to beat Tiamat because she's a woman and therefore her strength isn't equal to a man's, which is corroborated by the text because Marduk does end up defeating her. Yeah. In addition to Tiamat's misogynistic treatment within the text itself, her treatment by scholars since the time of the Enuma Elish's discovery has also misrepresented and misinterpreted her character. In 1893, the scholar George A. Barton said about Tiamat that she opposed creation, tempted and seduced man, and was the popular personification of hideousness, arrogance, and evil. Which, if we read the same text i don't see how any of that happened yeah absolutely (laughs) i i feel like people just see some sort of villainous figure and think she's like oh a seductress and like yeah she's evil and like all this stuff it's fascinating how how men will like will just invent things about women in texts that just aren't factual exactly (laughs) like do we read the same thing because when did she tempt and seduce man yeah or oppose creation. Like, mm-hmm. she literally created everything. So how did she oppose creation? Yeah, it's it's just nonsensical. Literally. And this potential bias is also evident in translation, as we'll see in a comparison of lines 42 to 43 of the first tablet, where Apsu has just told Tiamat his plan of killing the other gods. So, E.A. Wallace Budge wrote in his 1921 translation... Tiamat, on hearing this, was stirred up to wrath and shrieked to her husband unto sickness. She raged all alone. In contrast, the W.G. Lambert translation, which is what I mostly refer to for this episode, translated this portion as, When Tiamat heard this, she raged and cried out to her spouse. She cried in distress, fuming within herself. Hmm. Meanwhile, the translation by N.K. Sanders, a female scholar, mm-hmm. translated this portion as When Tiamat heard she was stung, she writhed in lonely desolation, her heart worked in secret passion. Which just hearing those just for like a second, you're like, okay, yeah, that's a lot of a more like sympathetic portrayal. I mean, the way that the first one says like she shrieked, mm-hmm. that feels very gendered. Yeah. But um, so in the first translation, he described her shrieking in wrath and making herself sick with rage, uh-huh. a depiction that makes her seem rather unhinged. Yeah. In the Lambert translation, she's still being described as being consumed by rage, but her internal distress is clear, making this a more sympathetic portrayal than the first one. Mm-hmm. In the Sanders translation, she writhes in desolation and her heart is in pain by Opsu's suggestion that they kill their own progeny, which is a more compassionate depiction than, than either of the first two. Yeah. Which goes to show you how important translation is. Definitely. Like, like it's all the same general scene, but the way that it's being spoken about really changes how you're supposed to view Tiamat. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think this trend of translation and how translation really influences our perception. We talked about the, with the Shahrazad episode and then last week mm-hmm. with Beowulf. And then now it's just like 
really important the power that a translator has to basically impose their specific ideas of what um, a woman or what a certain society is onto the reader and as readers who don't speak or read the language that's being translated there's not much we can really do about it except try and find a good translation which is Mm -hmm. and do our own like or compare translations yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah because the translator is like the lens through which you're seeing the tale Mm -hmm. and if it's it's like a story from a place like long ago that you know nothing about I mean yeah like what can you do like you don't you can't read the original language like they have a lot of power in like how you interpret everything Mm -hmm. absolutely anyway though I've also seen a general tendency in both older and more recent interpretations of the Enuma to ignore the parts of Tiamat from the beginning of the text that are maternal and easier to sympathize with for example, it says in the text that Tiamat was horrified by Opsu's idea that they kill their children, and even though she was annoyed by them, she wished to handle the situation without violence. However, I saw some summaries of the text that said that she was tempted to go along with Opsu's plan, or that she supported the plan, which is just not true at all. Mm-hmm. Like, if you read the text, that's obviously not accurate, yeah. and yet people say that when they, like, summarize the story, mm-hmm. which is, like, why that didn't even happen. Mm-hmm. And we just want to make her more villainous. Yeah. But anyway. Again, fascinating how people will just make things up when they're reading exactly. something. Mm-hmm. It seems that many readers wish to see Tiamat entirely as a villain and erase the parts of her that are more caring and sympathetic. Tiamat, to me, isn't a villain in this story. She created life, she gave birth to many great deities, and she cared greatly for her offspring, even when they were behaving poorly. She only began to act against the other gods after they tormented her, and then the focus was on her not acting motherly, rather than her children not acting filially. It just seems to me that there's a real double standard within the text, where Marduk, Ea, etc. can attack and kill their parents with no repercussions, but Siamat can't go up against her children even after they taunt and attack her without being branded as evil. Mm-hmm. And it's sure that Tiamat turned on her children, but it wasn't without any reason. And furthermore, it would be reductive to pretend that Tiamat's only role in the story is as an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Tiamat as the villain and Tiamat as the caring mother are two facets of her that exist in this story, and you can't ignore one and focus exclusively on the other. Mm-hmm. When you reduce Tiamat to a bad mother or the personification of evil, you also reduce the complexity of the story of the Enuma Elish. It's not only a story about Marduk defeating chaos and establishing order. It's also a story about cross-generational violence and suffering and of love and hatred. Mm-hmm. I just think it would be interesting if, to know more about mother-child, like mother-son relationships reviewed in yeah. Mesopotamian society. And like, were they violating that relationship or were they yeah fulfilling that relationship? Was there, that relationship not mm-hmm. super important and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be great to like be able to hear from like an ancient Mesopotamian, like what their thoughts are on this. but. <laughs> That's obviously yeah. not possible, <laughs> which is kind of like sad, but also kind of intriguing about ancient texts. Absolutely. We don't know like what any random Akkadian speaker or like somebody from Babylon was like thinking about the Enuma Elish. Mm-hmm. If they had interpretations, I don't know. They yeah. celebrated like once a year, like on Marduk's, some sort of celebration that had to do with Marduk. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And they read the story every year. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
So it was definitely a very popular story at the time. In my opinion, Tiamat is the most complex figure in this story because you can see her struggling with the decision she makes, whereas Apsu, Eya, Anu, and Marduk seem more single-minded in comparison. Mm -hmm. They go towards violence easily, but Tiamat disagrees with Apsu's plan and only begins acting violently when forced. It was clearly a difficult decision for her to fight her own children, and we can see that she initially finds the idea disturbing, but only decides to go against them when they punish her for not being a more loyal wife to Apsu. Another thing I think is interesting about her story is the fact that she created life at the beginning of the universe along with Apsu, but her dead body is also used to create heaven and earth. On the one hand, she's seen as an evil to be conquered, but on the other hand, her body is essential in creating the universe. Mm -hmm. In this way, she has a very dual role in the Babylonian creation story. She's both a force of chaos that needed to be conquered in order to create order, as well as an earth mother figure that provided life to all. Yeah. Her role as a mother goddess positions her as nurturing, protective, and caring, whereas her role as a villain positions her as a ruthless force of evil. I also think that if you if you think that the Enuma Leash was written during Hammurabi's reign, which not everyone does, you could see this duality as being indicative of the way that women were viewed at the time, where their only use was childbearing, and other than that, they were treated horribly and cast aside. Mm -hmm. Timaki burst the universe and... Like, that's basically the only positive of her story as far as, you know, the other gods were concerned. Like, other than that, she was really, like, cast aside. Mm -hmm. Either way, I do think that Tima is the most interesting figure in this story. Her two sides seem to contradict each other, though you could also argue that they inform each other. She cares for her children very naturally and instinctively, but she also knows when something is unjust. She disagrees with Apsu's plan of killing their children, but she also disagrees with the way that the other gods act after they kill Apsu. Mm -hmm. It's unfair of them to treat her poorly when she was on their side and wish to spare their lives, and she fights back because violence is the only thing they respond to. Mm -hmm. Her children were ungrateful to her, so she responds to them in a way that they understand, and only then does she become the villain. She responds to injustice consistently. It's just that the perpetrators of the injustice change from Apsu to her children. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I think like she does definitely has like, a dual role, Mm -hmm. But I don't think they're contradictory. I think she's just like a complex character. Yeah. She's like many things. It's really interesting because I think she's definitely representative of how women were viewed in society at the time when mm -hmm. it was written, most likely. But also, I think that she's really very much a complex and interesting character and a sympathetic character. And that might just be because yes. we view women as people, but also because... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think that there's just a lot of like character complexity yeah, going like on I, there. And I just think that's really interesting. I genuinely don't think of her as villainous, like at all. Like so many people are like, oh, she's the villain. She's like evil, blah, blah, blah. But I honestly don't see her that way. Like I see why they killed her because she was like mm -hmm. fighting against them and stuff. But I like we get to see her whole backstory. It's I think it's kind of sympathetic, you know, like it could yeah. be she, it could be that she was attacking them from nowhere, but. She had her reasons, you know? Yeah, I feel like in a way she's really the sort of epic hero in a lot of epics where we sort of see yeah. the ways in which... Like facing injustice. Their origin and, and how they become yeah, like yeah. the way they are. And in a lot of epics, the mm -hmm. heroes do some pretty bad things yeah. that are still treated sympathetically by the narrative. So I just think it's really interesting that she has that role. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And overall, I really just think she's the most interesting character in this epic. And like Marduk is meant to be like kind of the main character, I guess, but he like doesn't even come in until a little later mm -hmm. well i think actually things still like in the first tablet but anyway he's like not there at the beginning they just give birth to him and then they're like he's so great he's gonna like do so many great things you know yeah but he's not that interesting of a character 
you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But Tiamat is. Yeah. That's my take. Yeah. But I do think it's so interesting that her story is, like, such a clear example of, you know, the way that female figures in, like, mythology were treated and are still viewed now. Mm-hmm. Because even now, like, all these scholars and, like, also people who aren't scholars but who are still talking about the epic, like, online, like, the way that they talk about her, it's it's very unfair. Yeah. And they just really misrepresent her and misinterpret her. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying she's entirely sympathetic, but I do think she's more complex than just, like, evil, bad mom, you know? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think that she deserves better. I agree. And I hope after hearing this, people will agree to give her some justice. Yeah. And I also think it's pretty cool that she's, like, possibly a dragon or Mm -hmm. serpent. Yeah. Yeah, she's also a a Dungeons and Dragons character. She's, like, quite a big D&D character. Really? I guess. Wow, did not yeah, know that. actually. There's like, I know this because when you Google her D&D character, she has her own Wikipedia page, which is not the case for every D&D character. And there's oh. like a whole like D&D playbooks. Do you know her of. stats? I don't know that much about D&D. <laughs> I, I don't. I asked my brother because he plays D&D and he was like, oh yeah, like I know her. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Her lore, which I mean, he's like really into D&D. So <laughs> I he did probably not knows know that everything, about but still. That's pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is pretty fun, actually. And he has, like, a dragon, but I'm like, oh, is that Tiamat? He's like, no, it's just a dragon. <laughs> anyway, though. There are a lot of <laughs> he's dragons. He's not going to probably. I think, yeah. There, there are probably a lot. Of, I have never, okay, that's not true. I have played D&D, like, once I know. I didn't know that. I, <laughs> I was didn't... so bad at it. I was not good at it. Oh, I didn't know that Lizzie played <laughs> D&D. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I mean, it was more like my brother humoring us while we did whatever <laughs> we wanted. <laughs> It's really fun. Next time I'll I'll be Tiamat. Except I don't think I can be her. I think she's just a villain. But anyway, I'll try to be her. (laughs) You have to share your character sheet at some point. Okay. This was a long time ago. (laughs) I don't have it anymore. But okay. Mm -hmm. Do you have a D&D character? Um, I've made a few characters, but I've really been by various types of circumstances been prevented from playing any D&D games tragically. I think you should play a game about Tiamat. I would love to play a Tiamat I don't really know how it works. I'll see if I can... Yes. I don't know. I'll talk to my friends who know more about this thing, sort of thing. Okay. <laughs> so shout out to D&D players who listen to yeah, this. Yeah, shout out to all our D&D any... fans, of which I'm sure there yeah, are my brother legion. doesn't listen to this, so. Yes. I, mean, I have no idea. Is D&D popular? I only know my brother plays it. Um, I don't think it's as popular as it used to be, but I think that anyone who's interested in role-playing games is familiar with D&D. True. Yeah. Anyway, shout out to D&D. <laughs> shout out to D&D. Alrighty. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening, especially all the D&D fans out there. I hope you enjoyed this episode. <laughs> if you enjoyed, please subscribe, leave a review, tell all your friends about this podcast, tell all your followers, and we'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Ladies Podcast is produced by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. Today's episode was researched and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MythoLadies and visit us on our website at MythoLadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>